Well, today, you know, we're going to be spending our time continuing what we've been going over, actually, over the last few weeks, and that's the doctrine of salvation. Now, over the last six weeks, you know, Jason has been bringing to us this very, very important doctrine. And, you know, over those weeks, he went over some very, very important topics, you know, such as, for example, propitiation, the fact of our, um, the death of Christ appeasing the wrath of God, the understanding of expiation, having our sins atoned for through the work of Christ, and reconciliation, the fact of because of the redemption of Christ, now us being brought into a right relationship. He also discussed those who truly benefited from the work that was brought through the redemption. That was those chosen of God. Now, over the next six weeks, what I'll be doing is continuing this study and this understanding of the doctrine of salvation. But I'm going to be looking at it from a different light. You know, if we had to simplify, basically, what Jason discussed as it pertains to salvation, you know, he focused on the redemption that was accomplished. What was accomplished in redemption and how it was accomplished. I'll be focusing particularly on how that redemption is applied to us. But, you know, before we go any further, let's first go to the Lord our God in prayer. Our most gracious and heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for this time that we're going to spend diving into the truths contained within your word regarding in particular how this precious redemption purchased by Christ is applied to us. Lord, I ask that you may open the eyes and ears of all those who are here both here in this building right now and anyone who may be listening virtually, to understand the words that I will be teaching and preaching today. Lord, I pray that you may equip me so that I may be able to, to preach with clarity, so that is understandable. And I pray that all of us may be convicted in what will be brought today. So God, again, open our eyes and ears and enable us to be able to understand what your word teaches in regards to this precious salvation. We ask all of this in Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. So, you know, the reason why that I'll be spending this time talking about how our redemption is applied to us is that the understanding of this aspect of redemption is just as important as understanding how it was that our redemption was accomplished. And it's important so that we don't avoid some of the pitfalls that you see many Christians fall into. You know, if an improper understanding, for example, of redemption, the redemption that was accomplished by Christ, leads to a wrong understanding of who it was that gets saved, then an improper understanding of how that redemption is applied will also lead to an improper understanding of how we are saved. Pretty much, if you get everything and you understand everything that Jason taught us over the last six weeks, but ignore what I'll be bringing to you over the following six weeks, you know, you're going to fall into you know, the camp of people that tends to be more antinomian 
in nature, where they believe, in other words, that well, we're elect. You know, we're in Christ. So therefore, there is no need for us to do what God requires of us. We don't need to exercise anything. We don't need to grow in anything. We're elect. Therefore, we're good. You know, it reminds me of, and I think I've given this story before, of the time when I was, I think, either in middle school or in high school, and I went to the state fair with my best friend and his mom. I'll never forget going to the state fair. And in the state fair, you know, one of the tents was a tent of this Methodist church or whatnot. And I remember, you know, we went into that um, tent and then my best friend's mom was sitting with one of the ladies there talking about salvation. And one of the things that she said, and mind you, this was prior to me being saved. I attended church, but I was by no means saved or a Christian at that point in time. But I'll never forget the conversation that she had with them, where basically the lady told um, my best friend's mother that, well, you know, so long as, you know, you're saved, so long as you accept Jesus, it doesn't matter how you live. It doesn't matter, you know, the lifestyle that, that you have. And I remember, you know, my best friend's mom giving kind of a double take and saying, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. You mean to tell me that, you know, if all I do is accept Christ and then, you know, I decide to you know do whatever I want, go out, go out clubbing, doing all of this stuff. And then I die, then I'm good. And she was like, yeah. And then I remember she, you know, just took us and walked out from there. And then we just, I guess, you know, enjoyed the rest, the rest of the fair. It was this improper understanding, not just in regards to the fact of our redemption, but how it's applied. The true understanding of salvation that we want to avoid. And this is why we're going to be focusing and spending time today talking about the application of that redemption. So the question at hand, well, how is our redemption applied? How do we get from the fact that Christ accomplished redemption for us to the fact of that redemption now being applied to us? How do we get there? Well, let's start first by going back to my lesson on the covenant of redemption a few months ago. And if you remember, that covenant of redemption, the pactum salutis, is that overarching covenant that was made before the world was, was created by the Trinity. In that covenant of redemption, the Father sets apart a people for whom Christ would be the head and redeemer of. Christ, in turn, does all that's necessary to secure our redemption. And the Holy Spirit now comes, proceeding from the Father and the Son, and applies that work of redemption on those elect people. Or, if you want to see it laid out in the scriptures, it's exactly as Paul says in the book of Ephesians. Turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. Again, that's Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. And we see Paul writing these words. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ 
to himself according to the kind intention of his will. So there you go right there. The father and his role and his work to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood. Now we have the work of Christ, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times. That is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit. Now here comes the work of the Holy Spirit, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. So you see in this passage here, all three members of the Trinity are at work in accomplishing our redemption. The Father electing a people unto himself, the Son in his role, redeeming us, securing our redemption, by his death on the cross and the Holy Spirit having his role as well. All three members of the Trinity, though performing different roles, are all accomplishing one singular purpose, which is affecting and securing our redemption. Now, in spending the time that we've had over the last few weeks on how that redemption was accomplished, we put a necessary focus on the atoning and reconciliatory work of Christ because of the fact that our sins separated us from God. We saw in Isaiah 59, one through two, Isaiah saying, behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save, nor is his ear so dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities, your sins have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. So our sins have separated us from God. And in order for us to be properly reconciled back to God, brought in right relationship to God, our sins had to be dealt with. It had to be dealt with properly, which was by death. That was the cost for sin. Paul tells us as such in Romans 6, verse 23, the wages of sin is death. Now, as Jason alluded to in his lesson, and as I did in my lesson on covenants, the saints, under the old administration of the covenant of grace, the old covenant, as some call it, were given different sacrifices to point them to the fact of the type of payment necessary to deal with sin. You know, one sacrifice in particular, we see it in Leviticus 16, performed on the Day of Atonement, known today by modern Jews as Yom Kippur, it emphasized that work and most dramatically pointed to the perfect sacrificial lamb. When that time that God ordained came about, Christ came 
and accomplish all that he was sent to do. We saw this in particular with Enro's lesson on Christ the mediator in his estate, in his um, state of humiliation and exaltation itself, accum um, accomplishing all that was necessary. He was, as John the Baptist says, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Now, because of the gravity, the importance of the work of Christ, it was important to have all of that laid out over the last few weeks and months. But while Christ plays a vital role in the covenant of redemption, he doesn't play the only role. The Holy Spirit also plays an important role. And that role is seen in particular in the application of our redemption. So if you by any chance have your um, Westminster Larger Catechism, question 58 asks us this question. If not, I'll just read it. How do we come to be made partakers of the benefits which Christ hath procured, or in other words, obtained? And our confession states it in this way. They answer it in this way. We are made partakers of the benefits which Christ hath procured by the application of them unto us, which is the work especially of God, the Holy Ghost. The divines rightly note how the application of redemption is the work especially of the Holy Spirit. Now, they don't say that it's the work only of the Holy Spirit, as we will see in the following weeks, but that it is the work especially of the Holy Ghost. See, it's one thing for the work of redemption to be accomplished for the elect. It's another thing for that work of redemption to be applied to the elect. And I'll give you an example of what I mean, that difference. Let's say if Pastor Enro, after he becomes, you know, a billionaire hedge fund manager, let's say he comes up to all of us and says, hey guys, you know, I've set aside, I've set aside money to have all of your mortgages paid. We would be elated. We'd be thanking Enro. But you know what? It doesn't matter if Enro has saved up this money, has it set aside in his bank account for our mortgage to be paid off if that money is never applied to the mortgage itself. It doesn't matter that his bank account has all of that money if the bank never receives it, applies it, and then our debts finally pay. So long as the money's never applied to our mortgage, guess what you still have? A mortgage. You're still in debt. Likewise, it is fantastic that the work of redemption was accomplished by Christ but that redemption must be applied to us for it to truly matter. John Calvin, in his Institutes of the Christian Religion, he writes this, and this is a little long, but then it so, I think, eloquently just highlights what I'm saying. So he writes this. We must now see in what way we become possessed of the blessings which God has bestowed on his only begotten son not for private use, but to enrich the poor and needy. 
And the first thing to be attended to is that so long as we are without Christ and separated from him, nothing which he suffered and did for the salvation of the human race is of the least benefit to us. If we're separated from him, it doesn't matter. To communicate to us the blessings which he received from the Father, he must become ours and dwell in us. Accordingly, he is called our head and the firstborn among many brethren, while on the other hand, we are said to be engrafted into him and clothed with him. All which he possesses, as I have said, nothing to us until we become one with him. And although it is true that we obtain this by faith, yet since we see that all do not indiscriminately embrace the offer of Christ, which is made by the gospel, the very nature of the case teaches us to ascend higher and inquire into the secret efficacy of the spirit to which it is owing that we enjoy Christ and all his blessings. So see what he says here. He says, because of the fact not everyone is coming. Not everyone is embracing the offer of salvation. Well, we got to look beyond to see what the Holy Spirit is actually doing in this to cause us to embrace Christ. Calvin continues to say, let us at present attend to the special point that Christ came by water and blood as the spirit testifies concerning him, that we might not lose the benefits of the salvation which he has purchased. For as there are said to be three witnesses in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Spirit, so there are also three on the earth, namely water, blood, and the Spirit. It is not without cause that the testimony of the Spirit is twice mentioned, a testimony which is engraven on our hearts by way of seal, and thus seals the cleansing and sacrifice of Christ. For which reason also Peter says that believers are elect through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. By these words, he reminds us that if the shedding of his sacred blood is not to be in vain, our souls must be washed in it by the secret cleansing of the Holy Spirit. For which reason also Paul, speaking of cleansing and purification, says, But ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. The whole comes to this, that the Holy Spirit is the bond by which Christ effectually binds us to himself, end quote. So the Holy Spirit, the third person in the Trinity, is who applies that redemption to us. And it is with that application of the redemption of Christ that we enjoy the benefits of that redemption. So the Holy Spirit's work is of utmost importance. Otherwise, the work that Christ accomplished on the cross has no benefit to us because it wasn't applied to us. So again, how is the work of redemption applied? Well, primarily, though not exclusively, through the work of the Holy Spirit. Well, now that raises another question. What is that work which the Holy Spirit does in applying that work of redemption? Well, see, now that brings us to what we're going to be spending the rest of our day today talking about and over the next few weeks by that matter, which is the order of salvation, otherwise known as the order salutis. Now, 
When we hear people talk about salvation, they typically describe it as a singular moment, a one-time event. Hey, when were you saved? Oh, you know, I was saved on June 27th, 2005. Now, while I'm not here, I'm not poo-pooing that whenever someone says that I'm not going to be one of those, you know, you know, cage stage Calvinists that anytime you hear something that sounds kind of sort of off, you just, you know, call them a heretic, throw them off a bridge or whatnot. I do want to make clear that to truly understand salvation is to understand that salvation isn't a singular moment. It is not one act, but rather a series of acts and processes. You know, most of the time, if not all the time, when people ask, when were you saved? They're talking about one particular aspect of the overall plan of salvation. John Murray, for example, in his book, Redemption, Accomplished and Applied, he says this. When we think of the application of redemption, we must not think of it as one simple and indivisible act. It comprises a series of acts and processes. To mention some, and he gives, we have calling, regeneration, justification, adoption, sanctification, and glorification. These are all distinct, and not one of these can be defined in terms of the other. Each has its own distinct meaning, function, and purpose in the action and grace of God, end quote. So again, salvation is more than just one particular act. It's an entire process from beginning to end. Now, within that plan of salvation, that order of salvation, as I mentioned, you have a series of acts that take place. Well, what are those acts? So the acts that we have within the overall plan of salvation include effectual calling, us being drawn by the Father, regeneration, the Holy Spirit, replacing our heart of stone with a heart of flesh to embrace the gospel given to us, repentance unto life, us turning from sin and to Christ, faith, saving faith, trusting and resting on the promises of God, justification, us being declared righteous, adoption, us being placed into the family of God, Sanctification, both definitive and progressive. Definitive sanctification, us being set apart as holy. Progressive sanctification, us being conformed to the image of Christ. Perseverance in holiness, us from the time of our conversion to the time of our glorification, per persevering in faith. And finally, glorification, that blessed end to where we no longer have to worry about sin because we're no longer dealing with sin. That's the order of salvation. And now when we look at this, when we look at all these different parts, some of these acts that I noticed, that I mentioned, excuse me, are purely monergistic in nature. Or in other words, all of God. We don't participate in it at all. It's God's work in us. For example, like effectual calling, regeneration, justification, adoption, and glorification. These are acts all of God. Other acts are more synergistic in nature, where there is some action in our part. For example, such as repentance unto life, faith, sanctification, and perseverance. Now, when we look at the Bible, 
you know, like with the Trinity, you're not going to find one particular passage that lays out an ordered list or all the parts of salvation. Kind of like if you look through the Bible, you're not going to see one particular Bible verse that says, you know, God, it, there's one God who exists in three co-equal, co-eternal persons. But just like the Trinity, although you can't point to a passage that lays out an ordered list of salvation, we see through the Bible, by good and necessary consequence, that this understanding is so clearly implied and taught in the Bible. But we do have kind of a starting framework for our understanding of this order of salvation in the scriptures in Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 8 again, verses 28 through 30. And hear what Paul writes. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these, those people whom he foreknew and predestined, those whom he foreknew, excuse me, he predestined. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So we see in this passage a clear progression from beginning to end. Our redemption first being planned out in what's known as the pactum salutis or the covenant of redemption before the creation of the world within the members of the Trinity. After the world was created, our salvation commences with our effectual calling, God drawing us to him and terminates, ends in our glorification. Those whom God knew beforehand or quite literally loved beforehand, he predestined. Those whom God destined beforehand, he called to himself. Those whom God called to himself, he justified in Christ. Those whom God justified in Christ will end up in that blessed state of glorification. Now, seems clear, but there are some who will argue that in this passage, Paul isn't necessarily laying out an ordered list, but rather just laying out the blessings that believers have or will receive in Christ. Now, if that's true, that this wasn't meant to be an ordered list, but just rather a bunch of blessings that we receive, then that should mean that you should be able to rearrange the blessings that we see here in verses 29 and 30 without there being any problem. But I dare anyone to do that, because if you try to move one part from the order that Paul listed in, you're going to end up with confusion. For example, Right now, here in verse 30, we see um, glorification listed at the end. Try to move glorification from its place at the end to somewhere before effectual calling. Is that even possible? Can a person be perfected before they are drawn to the Father and justified in Christ? Can a person be justified without first being called? Can a person be called by God and justified in Christ without God first predestinating him unto Christ? 
can be done. So it seems quite evident to me that while not all the parts, not all the acts of salvation is listed here, this is so clearly giving us that framework to understand that there is truly an order of salvation. This passage provides us with an understanding of that progression to our salvation. So, again, so we see here in Romans chapter 8, 29 and 30, three of these salvific acts that are clearly specified, expressly specified to us. We see effectual calling, we see justification, and we see glorification. Now, we know that those aren't the only acts in salvation. Now, in order for us to derive the other acts, since it's not expressly stated here, will require us to look throughout the pages of Scripture to see, since it's not expressly stated, is it clearly applied, implied? So let's start first with regeneration. Turn with me in your Bibles to Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 6. In Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 6, we read this. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So we see Paul mentioning here in this letter to Titus how we are saved. He says we're not saved by any works that we do, any deeds done in righteousness, but by the mercy of God, by the washing of regeneration itself. So we see in this passage clearly an indication that within our salvation does involve regeneration. And then we have Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Paul, in another epistle, writing this. And you were dead in your trespasses and sin, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were made or and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love, which which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. So Paul, in this letter, tells us, and you were dead in your trespasses and in your sin. Now, I don't know if anyone's ever tried to talk to a dead person or a dead body, but it's kind of hard to get a dead person to do anything. You may want them to. You may ask for a dead person to come and, you know, pick up, pick up after themselves, to come and eat food. But then the problem is, is that they're dead. They're kind of unresponsive. 
And this is what Paul says in regards to us. We were dead in our sins. We were unresponsive. So any call, any appeal would go unnoticed because guess what? We're dead. But then what does God do? Similar to what Paul says in Titus chapter 3. In his mercy, being rich in mercy, what did he do? He made us alive. So again, in order for us to receive the blessing of salvation, we had to be made alive. We had to be made alive even to exercise faith, which is why faith is called a gift from God. And then we see in John chapter 3 to show that this isn't just something that Paul conjures up, but even Christ himself talks about. We see in John chapter 3, verses 3 through 5, when Christ talks to Nicodemus, he tells him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, well, how can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So one must be born again to even see the kingdom, much less enter the kingdom of God. But see, to be born implies something out of our control. We can't birth ourselves. That is the prerogative, the role of the Holy Spirit. It is he who does that. See, all of these passages that we read, and many, many more that I could have read, they indicate a a work that must take place apart from us, but yet in us, in order for us to exercise faith. Apart from us, from the standpoint that it's the Holy Spirit who brings about regeneration, takes place in us from the fact that it is within us, our hearts being replaced. That is what we call regeneration. So of logical necessity, we must place regeneration within the order of salvation, since one cannot even exercise faith without first having their heart of stone removed and replaced with a heart that is flesh. Robert Raymond, in his systematic theology, puts it in this way. While faith is the instrumental precondition to justification and adoption, regeneration is the necessary precondition and efficient cause of faith in Jesus Christ. In short, regeneration causally precedes faith. And you know, I think a perfect example of this we find in Acts chapter 16 with the story of Lydia. Acts chapter 16, verses 14. We see in this passage, a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, meaning basically a a Greek convert um, to to Judaism, not a Christian, as some Arminians sometimes like to say, was listening. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. So in order for her to respond to the things spoken by Paul, God opened her 
heart. Oh, there goes regeneration right there. So again, of necessity, regeneration has to be within that order of salvation. So we already noted the three that were expressly stated in Romans 8. And now we're going to add as we start to build in the order of salvation, regeneration. So that gives us effectual calling, which we saw in Romans 8. Regeneration, which we saw has to be embedded in there. Justification and now glorification. So now let's move on to the next point, the next act that is necessary in our salvation, which is conversion. And now by conversion, I mean both repentance unto life and saving faith. These are two distinct yet inexorably tied acts within the ordus salutis, the order of salvation, that is so clearly made abundantly clear in the Bible. For example, let's take a look at first repentance unto life. We see in Isaiah chapter 55, verse 7, Isaiah saying, Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him and to our God and he will abundantly pardon. So we see the prophet Isaiah calling people to repentance that they may be pardoned. Mark 1, verses 14 through 15, at the commencement of his ministry, we have Jesus preaching the gospel. And it says in verse 15 that he says this, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. So part of the gospel message for even Christ was one that included repentance. And then finally, Acts 2, verses 37 through 38 we have this. Now, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So the Jews, remember, this is the day of Pentecost. They see many of their brethren speaking in multiple languages, all praising God. Peter goes and preaches a convicting, soul-piercing message to them. And after that, they ask him, what, what, what do we do? And he says, repent. Repentance is an integral part in our salvation. But not just that but also faith, not just any kind of faith. We're talking saving faith. Galatians 2, verse 16, the first part, Paul writes, Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. How is a man justified? Paul tells us, not by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Faith is the instrument used by which we are saved. And then Ephesians 2, verse 8 through 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So again, Paul reminds the church in Ephesus that salvation is by the gracious act of God through the instrumentality of faith. So it is evident that if we're going to have an order of salvation, 
that is complete, repentance unto life, and saving faith must be included in it. Now, as far as its location in the order from, a, from that of logical necessity, not necessarily always chronologically, um, and other, basically in, in saying, just to explain what I'm saying, as we're going through you know, the order of salvation and listing all the different parts, even though obviously we're going point by point, it's not as though many a times, you know, one thing takes place right after the other. So much, so often some of these things take place simultaneously, like we saw in Acts chapter 16. In the same moment that Lydia was hearing the gospel, her heart was open and she was able to respond. It wasn't like a week later after her heart was open that it responded. But when we talk about order here, we're talking about that of, you know, logical necessity. One proceeds logically, causally, um, the other itself. So anyways, that being said, if we were to look at, okay, where does faith, where does repentance fall within that order of salvation? Well, it's clear from the Bible that we are justified by faith alone. So therefore, we place faith before justification because it is the instrumental precondition of our justification. And we place it after effectual calling and regeneration because one does not repent until their hearts have been saved, changed. Remember, one can't even see the kingdom of God until they are born again. I love how R.C. Sproul, in a sermon that he gave, he says, you know, one, isn't, um, one doesn't come to Christ to be born again. One is born again to come to Christ. So, now that brings us, so adding conversion to that order salutis, that order of salvation. So now, where are we at? We have effectual calling, we have regeneration, we have conversion, which we just saw has to be included in there. We have justification and glorification. So let's move on now to the next point that isn't expressly stated, but is necessarily implied through the scriptures. Adoption. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5, Paul writes, In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. So just right there, he talks about adoption. And us being adopted into God's family was part of the eternal plan of redemption. But now how does it take place in time and space post-creation? Well, we have the Gospel of John to inform us of that. John chapter 1, verses 12 through 13. The Apostle John writes this, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. See, while the passage in Ephesians clearly indicates adoption as a chronologically pre-creation act, within the order of salvation, adoption is usually placed after, or along with, excuse me, justification, and after saving faith to show that faith is the logical precondition to adoption. 
Again, we saw in John chapter one, those who received Christ, or to put it another way, those who had faith in Christ, they were the ones who were given the right to become his children, to be adopted into his family. Robert Raymond, he puts it in this way. Clearly, John teaches that faith in Christ is the necessary logical, not chronological precondition to adoption, just as it is to justification. And conversely, that adoption presupposes faith in Christ as the instrumentality through which the believer obtains the benefit of adoptive sonship. So adoption is part of that overall plan of salvation, the overall order of salvation, right along with justification. Because now we are placed into the family of God. We become his children. We can cry out, Abba, Father. So where are we at now with the order that we've built? We have effectual calling again, regeneration, conversion, which again um, includes repentance unto life and saving faith, justification, adoption, which we just saw is another necessary act, and glorification. So now let's look at the next point. Flowing from our justification and adoption in the order of salvation is our sanctification. Just like with the previous acts mentioned, the Bible is not silent as it pertains to sanctification, both in the definitive sense, so mean, meaning in that sense in which we are now placed as holy, set apart as holy, and in the progressive sense, where we're being made conformed into the image of Christ, the two aspects of sanctification. So let's look first at what the Bible says in regards to our sanctification from a definitive standpoint, from us being set apart as holy. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, Paul writes this, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified. But you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. So Paul notes that these were sinners who he was writing to, who received both justification and sanctification. They were not only declared righteous and set apart, they were set apart, excuse me, by God as well. But not only were they set apart, sanctified from a definitive standpoint, they're also being sanctified. They're growing in sanctification. And we see this in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 through 27, when Paul writes, Husband, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So we see in this passage where Paul is exhorting husbands how to love their wives, he explains to us in what manner, in what way, and why, as it pertains with Christ. 
Why did Christ give himself? So that he might sanctify her. So that he might make her holy. Not just set her apart. But have her grow in holiness and sanctification. Now, this doesn't mean, and we'll get to this when we actually spend time actually talking about sanctification, that we're going to be perfect in this day and age. We don't believe in that doctrine of Christian perfectionism. But it does mean that we are as we grow older, being conformed more and more into the image of Christ. So that puts us now looking at all the acts that we've seen. Again, effectual calling, regeneration, conversion, justification, adoption, now sanctification. We see clearly a necessary part and glorification. So now let's look at the final act or aspect within the order of salvation that isn't expressly stated, but necessarily implied just through reading your Bible. That's perseverance in holiness. See, the scriptures, the Bible makes it so clear, the fact that we who are in Christ are constantly to be putting off the deeds of the flesh and to be putting on Christ. We are called to persevere. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, we have the apostle Peter writing these words. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied, multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord seeing that his divine power granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. So we see in this passage, first, who is Paul writing to? Well, he says, quite frankly, in, in, in verse 1, those who are received the faith of the same kind, kind as ours. So he's talking about believers, He's talking about those who have embraced Christ. And what does he tell them? To make their calling and election sure. To walk in holiness. To persevere in holiness. There isn't this understanding, this idea that, well, I'm saved. So, you know what? I can kind of do whatever I want to because once saved, all saved. Nah, it doesn't work that way. While it is true, once you are saved, you are always saved. It is untrue that therefore you can live any kind of way. 
There is a perseverance in holiness, a call to live the life that God called you to live. Like Paul says in another apostle or epistle, you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. And then in the book of Galatians, where he also says the fact that we are to put off those deeds of the flesh. And to what? What are we to demonstrate? Those fruits of the spirit. In Ephesians, where he says to put on the armor of God. So there is a call to holiness, a call to perseverance. We see also in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 13, Paul writing this. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Well, see, if salvation was just a singular point, just one point, point in time, it would make no sense for him to say, work out your salvation. That implies something that isn't just a one-time moment, but a process over time. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But then he reminds us that we're not alone in this working out of salvation. He says, for God is in you. The Holy Spirit is in you to work and to will for his good pleasure. So that perseverance and holiness is not something to where we're doing on our own. This is why we saw in Ephesians chapter one, the Holy Spirit has been given to us. What is he? He is the seal, the stamp of our inheritance. The fact that we are indeed in Christ. Thus why we're called to bear forth the fruits of repentance, to bear forth the fruits of the Holy Spirit. Why bear forth fruit? Because the Holy Spirit is in us. It is he that is working in us to work and to will all that God calls us to do. And then finally, Ephesians chapter four, verses one through three. After Paul spends time in the first three chapters of of Ephesians, giving them who they are in Christ, the indicatives, he now moves on to the imperatives, telling them how they are to live in Christ. He says, therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. You're a Christian. Walk as a Christian with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. I've told you you're a Christian. I've told you that in love, Ephesians chapter 2, that you are made alive. You are saved by grace through faith. Ephesians chapter 1, I told you that you are predestined unto this. I've told you all this. I told you who you are in Christ. Therefore, now walk as a Christian. So perseverance is a necessary and vital component or else we're going to fall into that error that so many people fall into where they assume, well, I'm good. God understands. He saved me. I don't need to live any kind of way. All For all true believers, upon receiving justification and adoption, there is a continual walking in holiness. There is an understanding that they ought to persevere through until the day that they reach the end of their life. It's kind of like, I'm sure many of you have, of course, read the book Pilgrim's Progress. 
you know, one of the things I really appreciate more and more as I read the book, Pilgrim's Progress, is the fact of that actual progress itself. If anyone has read the book, then you know, where's the point at which Christian comes to the cross and has his burdens removed? Is it at the end of the book? Nah, it's actually somewhere in the middle. And after his burden is removed, when he arrives at the foot of the cross, there is still the perseverance that he has to deal with. There is still the trials. There are still the setbacks, the temptations that he deals with until he arrives at the celestial city itself. So there is that perseverance that we have as Christians that doesn't end at the point in which we are converted, but continues on until the day we see Christ face to face in glory. So as I wrap all of this up, I I hope you can see, though it's not explicit in one particular passage like we all would want to have, that the Bible is still very clear as to all that's entailed in the application of our salvation. See, within the overall understanding of our redemption and how it's applied, we see these things here. One, a believer is effectually called and regenerated. And upon that gracious work, they're enabled to repent and place their faith in Christ Jesus. Faith, of course, being the instrument by which the believer is justified, adopted, and set apart into God's family. Once he's placed into the family of God, the believer, through the Holy Spirit that dwells in them, perseveres in holiness and grows in sanctification until the day that they get to behold God face to face in glory. That's that salvation, that order of salvation. And the Holy Spirit, even though he is not the only member within the Trinity that's engaged in the application of our redemption, he plays a very prominent role during this process. See, this is what the Bible so clearly teaches us about our salvation. It's not just one moment in time. It's not just about the redemption that Christ accomplished. It doesn't exclude that, but it necessarily also involves how that redemption is applied to us. So over the next few weeks, you know, we're going to be studying carefully because I just laid out basically the order of salutis. Over the next few weeks, we're going to study carefully each of the acts within the order of um, salvation. And my hope is that as we were able to see the beauty and perfection in how Christ accomplished our redemption, that we will also, over the next few weeks, see the beauty and perfection in how that redemption is applied to us, the believer. So let us now go to the Lord our God in prayer.